Welcome to another episode of the Agile Uprising podcast. I am the Texan, Chris Merman. I am joined by my fellow mall board member, Colleen Johnson. Hello. And we have some very special guests. They are across the world from us, coming to us from Geneva, right, Jimmy? That's right. Yes. Uh, we are joined by two product thinking gurus in the industry that are teaching together right now. They're going to teach us or tell us about it. Uh, Jeff Patton and Jeff Gothel. Hey, folks. Hi. You sound just alike. <laughs> Do we sound alike? We don't sound alike. No. no. <laughs> I can't see it. I've got that we strong were, New Jersey accent. <laughs> you don't. We were joking before how in the world are we going to address each other. So we're not using last names only like we're uh, football team players, right? So <laughs> we'll use full names and uh, maybe either Messers or Sir in front of like well, you know, uh, it just, it just dignified. <laughs> You know, if we if we did just last names, it definitely would sound like the locker room. You know, if we did like Jeff P and Jeff G, it sounds like we're in kindergarten. So it's yeah. got to be somewhere in between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you two are kind of been well. You're teaching the CSPO class, right? The Certified Scrum Product Owner. Yeah, that's right. Now, how did you guys start doing that? Uh, how and why is a good, uh, you want to, uh, well, I've been teaching it for a while and I'm a certified scrum trainer. It's not something printed on my business card. It's not something that I proudly crow about. And uh, the only thing I teach is product ownership and I, I don't teach CSM classes. And when I started doing this, my intention was to focus on on, on the product stuff. I want to let people know that what I'm teaching is different. I'm not teaching you how to do the scrum role. We're teaching, I'm teaching people. I want to focus on teaching people how to design and build and ship successful products. I've known Jeff for a long time. Um, and I thought, first off, the way we teach and the way we work, uh, you know, we, we speak a similar language. I think teaching with Jeff sort of uh, makes it clear to everybody that this is not this is not an off-the-shelf scrum class. Absolutely. And, and for me, I think, you know, I've been teaching the Lean UX product discovery material for a long time. The When it comes to public trainings, uh, the, the majority of my classes have been one-day classes. And, and what happens at the end, so I, I get an opportunity to go through an introduction and an awareness exercise of the material and some of the tactics and then inevitably, when we close out the class or the classes, um, the conversation regularly, if not consistently, turns to, okay, well, how does this work with Scrum? And how does this work with, 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 with when you have like a 20-person engineering team? And how does this work when you've got 20 teams or 50 teams? Um, and so then how do you start to build these, these practices into uh, the rest of the team, essentially the rest of you, because typically the people who attend the Lean UX trainings were product managers and, and UX people or designers. Um, speaking, you know, generically, there's obviously other folks that attend as well. And so, you know, I, I saw an opportunity to teach with Jeff 
to start to bring that in together, right? So, so by, by making it a, a certified scrum class, it attracts a different uh, audience, a broader audience, folks who are looking, um, who have some understanding of scrum, maybe some of agile and are looking to expand it. And for me, I saw there as an opportunity both to learn from Jeff how to teach this material. <laughs> you were dead wrong about that. To fit into the Scrum model and then also to, you know, to expose folks who don't typically come to my classes to the material that I teach. So, and, and, and so, so from, strictly from a content perspective, that's, that was, that was the genesis of it. I also was looking forward to working with Jeff and learning from, from him as, as, uh, he mentioned we've known each other a long time and have always sort of talked to the same people, but from, from different angles and different and in different circumstances. So this, this has been an opportunity for us to uh, kind of kind of unify the, the conversation, at least. And then there's the laziness thing <laughs> where uh, we could uh, two of us can do a class and talk half as much. You know? Yeah, that's that's true. That's so, true. Uh, you know, yeah. so, <laughs> there's, there's you know, the point. A class by myself, I can't, uh, you know, I can't tune out. But when Jeff's talking, it's easy to tune out. Would you guys say that your course material differs in any way from from other CSPO classes? <laughs> uh, yeah, in fact, we, we've been talking yeah. about this a lot. Uh, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff's been in Europe for for uh, a little over a week now, and so he he stopped by. Uh, my place for the week. I live in Europe now, which is really nice. So uh, Jeff stopped by my place this this weekend, and that's we talked about that a lot. In fact, about how um, the material that we cover in this class, if other organizations have said, "Hey, we'd love for you to come and integrate some of this stuff," and it, it requires some fundamental changes or some fundamental rethinking to sort of the, the classic canon of Agile and Scrum. And so, yeah, it, it, there's there's definitely a a, a departure from standard product scrum based product ownership because we talk a lot about product discovery we talk a lot about experimentation continuous learning and, and frankly i think the most important thing that we talk about and, and, and it weaves throughout the the classes over the course of the two days is this concept of outcomes of, of changing the measure of success changing your definition of done about how you measure progress um, away from just shipping features to actually positively impacting customer behavior. And, and that's something that unfortunately gets overlooked a lot in sort of the, the classic scrum uh, product ownership conversation. And do you, do you find that that, um, that shift in focusing the product organization more into a discovery role, how does that change or does it change their involvement with the team in any way? How do I answer that? You, the way you <laughs> ask the question actually is the beginning of a conversation. Does, uh, what did you say? Does it change their involvement with the team? Uh, and you said, uh, does it change the organization's involvement with the team? Or the product, like the product product role. So does a, does focusing more on a discovery phase? One of the first topics we pick up is redefining the scrum team. If you look at uh, the, the way a scrum team is defined, you, you hear this idea of a team and then you hear this idea of a product owner. First thing we want to do, first and foremost, is to put that back together. A team includes a product owner, includes a UX person, includes developers, includes testers, and includes everybody it takes to get a good product outcome. 
And one of the things we'll I'll spend some time uh, talking about is this weird dysfunction that happens where uh, the, the product owner is the one that decides what to build and the team has to just shut the hell up and build it. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, you can edit that no, word out if you need to. Uh, the, the, the point that, you know, I don't want the team responsible for building what they said on time. I want the team responsible for building a successful product. And a product owner doesn't come into the job understanding uh, technical concerns, understanding user experience concerns. Uh, the product owner uh has a responsibility to collaborate fiercely with the team and together they deliver on outcomes. It's to collapse that separation. Uh, it's to take, there's a lot of kind of mantras that uh, get packaged up in scrum, like things like the product owner prioritizes the backlog and the product owner decides what to build. And a lot of those are, are, are myths. Uh, we want to bring back the product team that's responsible. And uh, we wanted to find that product ownership role as a leader of that team, not as a, a dictator or an autocrat. So you're describing collective product ownership. It is. Um, and there's, you know, if there's a continuum where on one side of the continuum is a dictator tells the team what to do and the, the, the team just does what they're told. Uh, and then uh, uh, anarchy or, oh gosh, I don't want to put, or let's call it democracy, where the team votes on what to do on Con one end. Consensus. The consensus. Yeah. The, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Gosh, what was I? Uh, I heard this. Um, I heard a, a term the other day that I liked a lot, um, and I don't want to think, send us too far sideways, but I heard this term, believability-weighted decisions. You ever heard that, Jeff? No. We haven't talked about no. this yet. Believability-weighted? Yeah, believability-weighted deci decisions. Uh -huh. Okay, so look, um, uh, there's this idea that the product owner decides uh, what gets built. But look, if we've got a decision to make about what uh, – that's a technical decision, like what architecture uh, to use or what uh, technical tools to be based on. Uh, uh, look, and if a product owner says uh, what technical tools we should do, a UX person says what technical tools we should use, and a senior engineer says what technical tools sh uh, should we use, who would you believe? Mm. Uh, the, the, the tech lead. The tech lead. Look, yes. if uh, somebody, uh, if a product owner and a, a UX person, a technologist uh, make decisions that uh, about how the UI should look and behave, who would you believe? And yeah, you get the idea. Right. Um, everybody's got an opinion. Every opinion counts. But the, the opinions that are most believable, most uh, useful are the opinions that come from, you know, we want a team built out of experts that, that can make good decisions. And the product owner is the one who's smart enough to understand whose decisions is, is weighted most. Um, anyway, it's not exactly a democracy. I want the smartest engineer uh, to be deciding. And uh, at the end of the day, it's the, this, the, this combination of works for our business, works for our users and works for technology that starts to rule. So at a base level, you're describing the value of pairing, right? Business and technology pairing to come up with the right yeah. things the right way, the right time kind of a thing. But that's easy to describe, difficult to kind of make a reality. So what do you all are, what are right. you experiencing as you teach this to companies? I think, I think it's interesting. There, there's so, there's so much 
material out there. And there's there's so many like of these phrases, believability, weighted decisions, right? Evidence-based decision-making, customer-driven innovation, uh, on and on and on and on, right? Um, it's it's like, well, wh- which one do we pick, right? And which one, which one do we go with? And I think that um, what we try to get across in the class are the basic concepts of um, customer centricity. So, so putting the customer at the center of the conversation and the, the, the processes or, or the steps that we believe work well to take, to take the, 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 that philosophy and apply it to product design and development. Um, and then you can call it whatever you want. You can lay you can lay it out whatever you want. You can lay the steps out whatever you in any way that makes sense for your team, right? I think that's that's ultimately the the thing that I think a lot of companies uh, don't really get. I see in my classes and in these two day classes a lot, um, people come in and they say, "All right, look, what's the answer, right? What's the recipe? Can you just give me the twelve steps that we have to do and to get this right?" and you know, and, and we can certainly give them a starting point, but as soon as you take the realities of their company, their industry, their, you know, corporate politics, their uh, regulations and constraints and, and, and domain specificities, right, all of those things will ultimately change the way that you do this, right? The way that you would do uh, product ownership, product management, uh, product discovery at Spotify is going to be radically different than the way that you would do it at a healthcare company or a hospital or uh, you know something along those lines, and so I think that that the you know what we try to get across are the the fundamental aspects of this style of of product ownership or product management, and and then let people then kind of evolve it in their specific organizations. It's got to be hard, right? You you only get a limited amount of time as a trainer. Um, you always hope you get more of that impact when they take everything back to their organization. What's, what's the one thing that you always, you, you hope that people leave that class with that they can take and, and put into effect right away? For me, uh, so, uh, well, those are two separate questions. <laughs> there's, there's, what do I hope they take back right away? And then what do I think they can actually put into effect? Because uh, those, I, I, I actually think those are, there, there's two, dif- two different answers there. I think that what I hope they take away is that they they're convinced to work towards changing their definition of done. That's that's what wow. I hope. They, that's, a, that's what I hope they take away. Yeah. I, I didn't say that's what they put in place because <laughs> yeah. I know that's extremely yeah. difficult. But, but but I hope like I hope the takeaway is we have to start to change the way that we manage these projects and how we determine whether they're successful or not. Away from from out from shipping stuff to changing customer behavior. Now, what do I hope they implement right away? I hope the first thing that they do, like the easiest thing for them to do is to run an experiment. So for me, if they if they leave after two days and they're inspired to go and and identify a risk, whereas in the past, you know, two days earlier, three days earlier, they would have just kind of blindly assumed they knew the answer to and run an experiment to verify that they actually do know the answer to it. That's what I hope they do. They implement right away. I'm going to answer the question kind of. Uh, different uh or is it so yeah i'm kind of multidisciplinary i have uh, done ux stuff i've written code i've been a product manager and i can remember uh, i can remember first starting to read uh 
books on user experience, in particular usability stuff. And as soon as I read something about how usability works uh, and some basic heuristics for uh, analyzing whether something is usable or not usable, suddenly everywhere you go, you start noticing problems, usability problems. Anybody's ever been taught the difference between a push and a pull handle and how it should look starts getting bugged by handles that are put on doors wrong or you know, uh, a handle that sort of suggests pushing when it's pulling. One of the things we I want to do is expose people to how to start paying attention, a little less attention to time, cost, and scope, a little more attention to outcome and impact or whether we're actually getting value, a little more attention to customers. And I want them, I, what I expect, and actually what I have a lot of evidence is that people go back to, uh, to work profoundly bothered or uh, uh, they start noticing stuff that they didn't notice before. Mm. One of the annoying things also is we can teach when we we teach an awful lot of practices, uh, uh, some uh, stronger language around product thinking, a lot of practices, and. The problem is software development is a team sport and you can change your own behavior, but you can't change your company's behavior. Right. Uh, the people that leave the class end up just speaking and thinking differently about it. And, you know, one of the, there's little foundational things we teach about how to collaborate more effectively and, and how to talk about things differently. And we expect learners that come out of this to actually start being better at collaborating immediately, start talking about things differently and start to have a little bit of a, an effect on their organizations to start to move their organizations. But, you know, at the end of the day, this starts to be a bit of culture change. This isn't uh, just adopting a process. It's adopting a different way of thinking. So I think both of your answers on the this dreaded V word that we talk about in product thinking, which is value, right? As a consultant, and we're all consultants. <laughs> oh, not that V word. Yeah, there's a couple other V words. It's for me, it's a dreaded V word because it's easy to talk about, difficult to quantify and put into practice, right? So when you think about what is valuable, there's so many ways to take that, right? Um, what have you what have you both experienced as a um as a positive and a negative when trying to quantify value in organizations? This is going to be the annoying thing. We both have answers to this. You want to take take yeah. it, Jeff? Give yours, and I'm going to get. I have a strong, uh, strong feeling about that. Yeah. So I'll go first, and then I'll share my strong feeling, and then you can share your strong feeling. Maybe they'll be the same strong feeling. I have no idea. Um, maybe they'll let it yours out. Maybe they'll let it mine out. <laughs> um, look, the, here's what I think. I think that the to me the value that teams work towards is almost exclusively driven by the incentive structure of their organization. In other words, what? people will optimize their behavior for what gets them paid. And, and it's, Are you saying people just suck up? I think – No, no, no. I think I'm people, interrupting your thoughts. No, we're going to have to edit the heck out of this. No, too. it's okay. This <laughs> is good. But look, the, the reality is that like, yeah. like it, it, we can we can talk to as many people as we want, and we have. We've talked to a lot of people over the years, right, about these ideas and delivering customer value, delivering, you know, making the customer successful. But at the end of the day, if what I get a promotion for, what I get a good review for from my boss is – shipping product on time and on budget, right? 
I'm likely going to, to optimize my behavior, my collaboration, my team's behavior to doing that. If I can sneak in discovery here and there, that's great. But but this is what it comes down to. And I think that this is this is why I've been working is I've been trying and, and, and it's, it's not going to happen in these CSPO classes because we don't we, we don't get that audience in there. But I've been trying to, to have a, a higher level conversation with C-level executives and, and primarily HR to really get them to think about what does performance management look like in an agile organization. Right. And so because because if, if that doesn't change, right, performance management being uh, what people get evaluated for, what people get raises for, what people get promoted for. Right. What are the values we care about in the organization? If that doesn't change, then all the agile training, all the certifications, all the vocabulary shifts, all of that will eventually hit that wall and we'll never fully realize uh, that 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 the ability and the capability to to deliver what I believe is is customer value as the success. So before Jeff Patton, before you go, what I wanted to plus one to that comment is it's not just the incentives of the employees, but also how our work is funded, right? I mean, with companies, as soon as they get a little bit of funding, it burns a hole in their pocket and they they, they don't care what they build. They just need to build something because they got money. Like why, what, who cares how valuable it is? Yeah. Right. And, and if you don't, if you don't burn that budget, you don't get it next year. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's the, the, yes. So we're getting into HR, we're getting into finance and funding models and planning and budgeting. And inevitably this is where all these conversations end up. Organizations that are truly trying to become agile and, and deliver value to customers more effectively this is this is kind of where they, they start to hit the wall. And, it, and it's, a, it's a difficult wall to break through because you're dealing with a hundred years of kind of organizational design momentum, right? Or, or, or management style momentum. And it's, it's difficult to, to break that down. Your turn, Mr. Patton. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it, it, it just sounds better. Uh, uh, now, uh, as soon as you talk about value, value actually is a bit of a, a hot button for me because I hate people saying that term. It has so many meanings to so many people. Uh, you were just talking about it will, we get a budget, so we want to spend it all and get as much value as possible. Uh, and you get all-you-can-eat buffet behavior out of uh, out of people. Um, uh, and uh, loading up your plate full of food isn't necessarily value. Uh, value is loading up your plate full of stuff you really love, uh, and some and less is more in that, uh, a lot of situations. One of the things I'll talk about is uh, one of the things we talk about is first off we talk a lot about metrics and how you actually measure value. And one of the uh, things we want organizations to start to do is actually measure whether they're getting value or not, whether not whether they spent their budget or not, not whether they built what they said they would given that budget or not. Um, uh, it's whether we got the value we actually wanted or not. Uh, we talk about measuring value from a business terms, uh, whether we're getting return on investment for this. We talk about leading indicators of value, uh, like people using the stuff you just shipped. It takes people using that stuff uh, to get value. Uh, we, when we're prioritizing big things to put in our product, we kind of align those around what's going to benefit our business. When we talk about how much to put into a release, we talk about focusing on specific users and specific needs. And then uh, when we start to talk about what to build in the next sprint, 
It's no longer about what users need. Once we've decided what users need, it's more about breaking things into little pieces. And we, the, the highest value when we're building a piece of something starts to go to technical risk or things that affect our predictability or things that affect the quality. Uh, and we want people to understand how to articulate why this is of value right now. Uh, you know, one big reoccurring theme is the difference between uh, uh, um, when we ship software, shipping to earn versus shipping to learn. Uh, that's a good one. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I got that tattoo. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right what I say. That's right. You know, I thought it was. I thought it was uh, <laughs> yeah. on your. Well, never mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that's what you named. Uh, the left side was earn, right, right side was earn. Right. Learn. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, the uh, you know we ship stuff sometimes because we want to learn if people uh, if this is actually going to get us value. Uh, we we ship uh, products to a small subset of customers to learn if it's useful. Uh, but when we ship something to learn, we're not expecting return on investment. Uh, we're expecting to and we're expecting to learn as fast as we can. But if we're going to ship something to everybody. Um, well, well, if we're going to – sometimes we ship and we expect return on investment from what we shipped. Uh, people need to draw the distinction. And what we don't want people – what I don't want people doing, uh, I'm sure Jeff agrees, <laughs> is shipping something to everybody to learn, uh, which is paying a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if you've got a commercial product company, uh, embarrassing yourself. There's phrases like there's you know, no second chance for a first impression. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, if you – yeah, are shipping crap to people, hoping that it you you uh, shipping crap and iterating until it's good. Uh, that doesn't work for commercial product. The hail mary feature. Uh, well, yeah, it, it's the yeah, or just shipping it because uh, stakeholders told you, or because it's uh, you have to, or uh, it, it, that's not value. Uh, that's doing what you were told, and right. just uh, uh, if you know. You know, one. You know, I'm gonna, you know, ranting. Everybody knows that the the most valuable products aren't the products with the most features. Uh, everybody knows that the product companies that are most successful aren't the companies that have the most different products. Uh, it, it isn't about uh, the amount you ship. It's about the quality of what you ship. Uh, uh, yeah, it's quantity is uh, quantity isn't quality. Velocity isn't value. Uh, lots of mantras go with. I was going to ask, I, I feel like one of the questions I hear frequently when, when train a coach to similar to a similar recommendation is what you're saying here, Jeff, is that Jeff and Jeff is that, um, that there's a, there's an obvious cost, right. To organizations. And how do you, how do you convince them that that's a cost or that's money well spent, right. That they may be shipping, they may be shipping the, you know, spending time developing something to learn, um, versus, um, you know, where that, where that money could be going elsewhere and that that's a good cost for a company. I want to take that one first. Okay, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I'll take it first and then I'll let it mm. left. The, the truth is it's not a cost. Um, uh, that's what I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, fine. I, I stole it. It's not a cost. The only it's, – it's a benefit. Um, when you uh, ship something to learn, uh, it reduces risk. It's a risk reduction measure. Um, the only way that shipping to learn looks like a cost is when you don't measure the benefit. Um, uh, it, it's easy to... It, it, 
in when you're in a context where the only thing that you're and this is back to Jeff's conversation about what you're rewarded on, if you're just rewarded on shipping more features, it's a very different thing than being rewarded on actual return on investment or people paying attention to whether people actually use those features. Um, uh, look, uh, startup founders aren't a, aren't awarded rewarded based upon the number of startups they start, they're ways rewarded on the number of startups that succeed and most fail. And the, the truth is that most of the features or capabilities we put into product really underperform. But it's it's easy to not know that if we never actually measure. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, the short answer is it's not a cost. The only way it looks like a cost is in organizations that actually don't measure whether what they ship got used. And what we teach in, in these classes and in our you know, the material that we create and, and, and everything is, is how to reduce the investment yeah. in that learning. That's, that's, yeah, well, I'll take it. I mean, I, well, no, no. Yeah, gosh, but, yes. But that's, yeah. but that's, but that's the, you know, people see it as this, as this cost. And, and what we are, I, I think one of our main goals in these classes is to imprint on the people who take the class that the learning does not have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be lengthy. You can learn very quickly, very cheaply what you need to know today or this week or this sprint and then keep moving forward. Right. So it's, it's doing it. It's, it's building this practice of learning into the, into the cadence of each, uh, each, uh, iteration, each cycle. Yeah. So that, so that the, the ultimately the benefit becomes clear and the cost of getting that benefit can be truly trivial at times. Yeah. It could be, and it could be free, especially early on in, in, in engagements is, is, or in initiatives. Um, so, so that's, that's something we're also trying to get across. So that's an interesting lean principle, right? So that, I mean, that, that lines up with both of your, you know, kind of your writings and your, your, your teachings and such, but, if I'm trying to marry the two, right? So, you know, Jeff Patton, you were the, you're, you're the, you're the one that's got the book that where we've got just long, long, long maps of cards, right? We've got a whole map of a journey of value or whatnot. How do we, how do we reduce it when you've got that whole journey and mapped out? How do we show them that there is a small cost to learn a little bit of this? How do we show them there's a small cost? Hey, there's a. I'm gonna reverse the the question, uh, or at the risk of teaching this class uh, in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that uh, Jeff Gotthelf has taught, and one of the things that uh, you know we teach in this, uh, uh, is this idea that if if you want to build something. Um, uh, well, we, we teach writing a hypothesis statement, and a hypothesis says that uh, we believe if we build this, uh, that not that we can build this on time, but that these kinds of pe- that these kinds of people have this problem, and this what the, the thing that we're building solves the problem, and we believe that people will use it, and we believe that uh, you know we can measure their use this way, and ultimately if they use it, it'll benefit our company this way. Uh, I made that long and tangled, but uh, but yeah, basically the a hypo- gist is there. The, the gist is there. We we teach them to write their hypotheses. Now I like replacing the we believe that in hypotheses with a we bet that, and uh, we ask people, look, if it was if it was your money to make, or if it was your money to bet, or if you were responsible uh, for the fact, not that you can build it, but that people would use it uh, and uh, your company would benefit, would you bet me lunch? 
would you bet me your next vacation? Would you bet me your car? Would you bet me your house? Would you bet me your 401k? And I find so much of the time that people are working on things <laughs> that they wouldn't bet you lunch uh, are going to benefit <laughs> uh, their organization. Uh, yet we are building potentially shippable software. Yeah. And if the goal is to de-risk that bet, uh, to uh, to uh, is to say, okay, what would what would I need to learn in order for me to be more confident in this bet? Um, uh, yeah. Well, one of the things we talk about is the most expensive way to learn uh, is to build production quality software. Right. Uh, if you don't know, if you wouldn't bet me lunch that, that this is going to work, but we're building production software, that's that's foolish. Uh, that's one of the things uh, we end up talking about. And when, when uh, we find that when you put it that way, uh, people start to get their heads around, uh, you know, why learning starts to be important. And they start to think out of the box when they think of, okay, what do we do short of building software uh, to learn? But, but again, it's, it's setting the expectations for the product manager or the product owner role that they don't have to have all the answers. Yeah. Which is, which is again, I, I think many product managers and product owners see themselves as the person who should know. And whether it's because of their own perceptions of the job or whether it's the culture of the company where they work, they don't feel comfortable articulating the, their ideas as bets. Right. Right. Because because if, if this is a bet, shouldn't I, shouldn't I be sure? Why am I betting? I'm, you're the product yeah. owner. Shouldn't you know? Yeah. Shouldn't I know? Right. And, and I think that, that, again, that comes down to culture. Right. Is it, is it safe for me to be wrong? Uh, is one, but it's also an, an expectation setting of the job itself, right? Um, you know, you're, we talked about how you define this job, what is this job a little bit earlier, right? Um, uh, uh, Horowitz, uh, ben, ben Horowitz, ben Horowitz yeah. said, said 20 years ago, he said the product manager are the CEOs of the product, right? Um, and I like, uh, I like Martin Erickson's take on that, where he says you're, you're the CEO of nothing, right? You've got, you've got all the responsibility and none of the authority. Right. So, so you, you do have to steward or own or, you know, shepherd this product ultimately to some kind of hopeful, hopefully customer centric value. Um, but you don't have any of the authority to make any of the decisions. Right. And so the question then becomes is how do you know you're making good decisions? Right. How do you know that you're, you're, you're choosing uh, the, the right, like which, you know, how do you weight the believability to kind of come back to your phrase before, right? And that's where this continuous learning, this discovery process comes in. Um, and, and, and again, this, there's so many factors that affect people's willingness or ability to work this way that range, again, from job descriptions to performance management to culture that it's, uh, it's, a, difficult, um, it's a difficult sell. Yeah. Well, my apologies for all the free teaching that uh, I was trying to pull from you. We'll uh, we'll make sure that we get thirty nine ninety five sent uh, by each listener to you. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's shift a little bit. Let's talk about teaching in general. Like, what's your experience so far? When you all got started, would you say that y'all agreed on what product ownership was? I think I think we agreed uh, in general and in most of the specifics. There are a couple of points in, in the class in the two days where Jeff and I disagree on a few things or have different points of view. Um, you know, we, we've come at this um, from some, some similar backgrounds, some different backgrounds as well. But there, there are definitely situations where the 
there are some practices that Jeff promotes that, that you know, I, I disagree with. Um, what? No, it's true. It's true. But, you know, I've never said anything before now. And I usually wait till. Yeah. I usually wait till Jeff goes to the bathroom and then I explain to people in the class why Jeff said. is wrong. Yeah. Right. So. Ignore the last 15 minutes. You know, I think that disagreement in a class is probably a great thing for people to see, especially in a certification program. I think so many people look to look to the courses or look to um, writing or, or um, blogs or whatever. You know, they're looking for they're, that there's only one correct answer to all of these things. And I think it's it's great to share different perspectives in a training class, especially a certified one, so people can see there's multiple ways of thinking about this. Yeah. I mean, in fact, again, one of the conversations we had this weekend or, or it might've been today, earlier today was about the, the hypothesis statement, right? Uh, you know, if you, if you look up hypotheses in this, in this lean startup, lean UX product discovery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you'll find uh, several different variations on the hypothesis statement. Uh, as Jeff likes to point out, I've written at least three of them <laughs> at this at point. Least. At least three variations. I think of four. Them. You know, and, and, and look, that's just a shot. That's just a, an example of how open-minded I am uh, and, and humble. But uh, uh, but or wishy-washy. Well, no, no, no. It's humility. Okay, it's humility. that's harsh. No, it's, I didn't it's mean humility. that. It's uh, humility. But no. But the point the point is is that look again. If if the and, and ultimately how you write your hypotheses or how people write their hypotheses when they, when they leave the class, I don't really care as long as they write hypotheses yeah. and as long as the kind of the, the core components are there, right? They're, they're measuring, they're, they're thinking about their, their, uh, their ideas as, as, as assumptions and they are looking towards objective measures of success. That's all. Jeff, I'm mindful that every time they ask us a question, we just take it and run with it. And I, by the time either of us get to the, the end, I've forgotten what their question right, was. Yeah. Did we answer the question? What? I don't think there was a question. Was <laughs> Jeff, what did you disagree most with GoTelf about when you got started? Wow. What did I agree with most dis with them dis about? Just disagree. Oh, disagree. Oh. God. Um. <laughs> What would you, 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 Jeff? You want to? I think the biggest point is at least that, that I can recall uh, on when we do this is, is the backlog. Like, how many backlogs yeah. should you have? We talk a lot about that and have different points of view on that. Uh, there's uh, one of the uh, points. You know, it's funny we make a point about this. I came from a product background, um, and I, uh, I'll you know be clear about this. I don't like the I. Uh, I don't like the, the the language the Scrum community uses about having a, the backlog be a single prioritized list. Uh, I think uh, that there are big things that we're thinking of doing that are strategic, that are opportunities, that are options, and I prioritize those to be aligned with where I'm trying to take my product. I think when I pull one of those things out to work with, then I start working with the parts of those, and I start uh, I work with prioritization differently when I'm trying to figure out what parts of a feature to be successful, and then uh, I when I start getting ready to build something then I break things down even further and I prioritize the little bits of things that I build separately and look I want a backlog for opportunities I want a backlog that I'm using in discovery to, that I use to juggle parts and then I want a backlog that I'm using it in development um, and uh, but yeah uh, and one of the things we talk about is you know how do you prioritize improvements on the product we have against strategically important things and uh, in my in my pithy answer is how do you prioritize 
eating against sleeping. <laughs> uh, you don't eating. Uh, the, <laughs> um, yeah, right now eating actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, but both are important. There's we have different kinds of work that we do. We we run our lives that we're able to prioritize. Look, I'm able to prioritize my life against uh, uh, work and home and family and uh, you know uh, personal uh, interest. I prioritize my personal backlog uh, and pull from three different backlogs. I don't know that I need to single thread it. I hear you. And then uh, Jeff says, uh, uh, I, so, so look, I, we, we all speak from, from our own experience in my experience, you know, my background is UX and product and uh, the teams that I've worked on, the teams that I've worked with and the teams that I've led and, and that I've consulted and coached with. What I find is that what I've found over the years has been that there is the backlog which is where people stand around every day and coalesce around and choose what to work on today, this week, this sprint, that type of thing. And then there are all the other lists, which in my experience have primarily functioned as confessionals. Like, I wish we could do this work. So I'm going to put it on a card over here, right? I wish we could do this work. Um, I'm really sorry we didn't do this work. And we put it over there and put it over somewhere there. And, and, and ultimately going and pulling from those lists and then reconciling them with the backlog has proven to be a challenge for the team. Again, for the teams that I've worked with, that's been my experience. For example, I've worked on teams that had a, a UX debt board, right? We wish we could have rounded the corners. We wish the animation was better. We wish there were drop shadows, whatever it was, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, and uh, you, you, Going like th there was, it, it was really just a place for designers, and maybe this was this was partially just kind of bad product ownership and product management on my part. But but it was a place where designers went to sort of unload all the things that the, they they kind of regret never made it into the product um, because the team was in the team could not reconcile more than one list. For, for doing the work. So that's, that's one thing that we disagree on. Yeah. Oh, it, and it's funny when we talk through it, we end up just disagreeing sometimes on logistics. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, I uh, make my jokes about uh, you can't prioritize sleeping against eating, but the truth is you do prioritize sleeping against eating right. because at any given time, you can only do one thing or the other. Uh, right. You can't eat and sleep at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And uh and some and I think yeah and part of the reason why Scrum gets pretty deliberate about the single uh prioritized backlog is sometimes uh you, maybe it, we do want organizations to have focus. Yeah. Um but uh I think uh, putting it as in a yes, I agree with the we should have focus but putting it in a single list uh is not a not a mechanism I yeah. use. Here's the thing, though. Let, let me let me add. Let me just add one more thing. And, and again, this this is something that that I I try to impress on the class and and just the, the people that I work with in general. Right? Is this? I think that a single prioritized backlog, when used correctly, is the most powerful project management tool you can have. And when used correctly, it gets product managers, product owners, teams, whatever, out of the business of saying no. They don't have to say no anymore, right? Because look, you've got a finite amount of time that you can fit a finite amount of work into, right? Mm -hmm. The whole, you know, 
five pound bag, if you will. You can't put 10 pounds of crap into that five pound bag, right? And then, and so, so, so then, and, and you've prioritized that based on something. Let's assume it's best case scenario and you've prioritized that on customer value, okay? And then something happens, uh, an executive, uh, you know, kind of hand grenade is launched from the outside. Like, a, you know, a, um, I have a client that calls them JFDIs, yeah. uh, right? I, I don't know, I'm sure you guys uh, know that it's, uh, <laughs> It's short for just do it. Just do it, <laughs> My, right? Uh, and and this is, those things come up. Just do it, right? Uh, there are fire drills. There are bugs. There are wh whatever, right? And and when when an executive or somebody from outside the team comes and says, "Look, just do this thing," and you have a value, and again, we've we've talked about value. But let's just let's just generically say value for a second. Uh, prioritized backlog. You can you can say, look, here's what we're working on, and here's why we've chosen to work on it this way. What should we take out to accommodate this executive order, right? And if and it, and so you're kind of putting it on them to help make that decision. And then when they do, they say, okay, take these three things out to accommodate my my demand. You can say, here is the impact of taking those three things out, right? Here is the impact to, to the value, to the customer experience, to the revenue to the bottom line, whatever it is, right? And and again, this becomes a decision that that you then that the executive then has a clear trade-off to make or, or whatever the whoever's driving that that um, that fire drill. And I think the backlog functions really well as a tool to to expose that, to visualize it and to make those trade-offs clear. Chris, did we uh, successfully uh, bore you enough with our answer? Forgot your question. Well, I, sorry, I, I'm not about there. I was actually eating and sleeping while you were uh, giving those answers. <laughs> what I will say that I learned is everybody go home, Colleen, you two, and go make an apology backlog. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what I learned from all that. I'm so, I'm sorry we didn't do this. That's, uh, that's genius. Your original question was, uh, do we uh, disagree with each other? We disagree with, with each other on a lot of fine points. And if you get us going too long, we'll do have a lot of arguments that are all those variations of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of arguments. Uh, but the, the truth is we keep together because we're pretty freaking blind. <laughs> Look, I've, I've interviewed Woody Zool. Yeah, nobody rambles like Woody Zool. So you guys are you guys are good. <laughs> I just spent a bit of time with Woody in uh, <laughs> in uh, uh, in Australia earlier this year. So. Oh, that's awesome. I like Woody's ramblings, so <laughs> it's okay. One point that you made, uh, Gotelf, that I would or Jeff Gotelf. Sorry, we weren't going to use his last names. This idea of correctly that it, it's it's probably one of my hot button words kind of like Jeff Patton's is value. Yeah. Um, I usually get hung up on that. Uh, not because I disagree with the statement. Y yes, doing things in a way that makes the most sense is good. But when we get caught up as agilists on this idea of like, you're not doing it correctly, like it really just yeah. rubs me the wrong way. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, you're navigating yeah. that topic of doing things correctly. How do you how do you teach a concept without being so rigid about it? That's, that's a really fair point, Chris. I mean, you, you're right. Um, I think that with, with many concepts, correctly is whatever works in your organization, right? Look, with a, a backlog, is just it's just a list. Like that's it, you know. And so as long and and so. 
you know, navigating it, I guess, I guess to me is, is you're right. That word, that word is, is, is a bit, uh, a bit of a landmine to me. It's just saying, look, if, if you take most of the stuff that comes out of sort of the, the scrum and agile literature, if you will, is, is extremely prescriptive. And we certainly downplay that prescription, uh, that level of, of, you know, you must do it this way. Um, there are certain things that I think are simple enough, like a backlog where explaining it and it's, and it's, purest form right like it's, it's literally a prioritized list of stuff like that's it how you prioritize it that's up to you right how much stuff goes in it that's up to you uh do you estimate what's in it that's up to you right but it's, it's, a, it's a prioritized list of stuff i think i think if you take like the, the purpose of this thing is to plan work um I, I think that you can you can hopefully navigate it enough to say like this is the reason why this thing exists how you know the, the the different attributes of it are up to you and your organization, but generally speaking, that's what this is for. Um, let me throw something out there too. It's uh, it's funny you said uh, one of the things you said that I immediately bristled at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to write a sticky note here <laughs> that a, a lot of the agile uh, community or what you hear in agile and Scrum is is prescriptive. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that there is uh, I'd say there's a lot that's prescriptive and there's an awful lot that's not. What people end up paying attention to is the prescriptive stuff. That's what they're a looking lot of for. times, and that's what people are looking for. And prescriptive is an interesting thing. Um, you know, look, um, uh, prescriptive is awesome. Prescriptive is terrific. Um, uh, the, uh, look, if I want to learn how to cook something, I want a recipe. Uh, uh, and, uh, and look, and if, uh, look, you sent me a recipe just yesterday. We were talking about something. What did I you did. send me a recipe for? Shakshuka. Yeah. So if you want Jeff's yeah. Jeff's shakshuka recipe, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, email Jeff or email me, and I can send you mine. And I'm going to need that in order to cook that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and uh, you know, if Jeff were to say, "Look, I don't want to give you a recipe because it's too prescriptive," uh, <laughs> yeah. that would sort of suck. But at the same time, we all know that great chefs uh, aren't great because they have better recipe books, uh, right. and people that are good at what they do aren't recipes. We need recipes to start. Right. The mistake the agile community falls, and I think, uh, Chris, I know I'm spe- uh, preaching to the choir with you, uh, is when we start to believe that the recipes are the way. Uh, and you know, the recipes are definitely not the way to be good at software product development, uh, any more than recipe books are the way to be a great chef. I love that analogy. It's good. Yeah. I've never thought about that before. The, the magic isn't in a framework. It's how you apply the framework to you and iterate and learn from it. That's right. It's practice that makes you good, and it's recipes that help you start to practice. Uh, and it's uh, this goes back to uh, Coburn's Shuhari kinds of stuff. And it's the it's the shedding the recipes that makes you good. It's being dogmatic about recipes that sort of fixes you in mediocre space. And hot sauce that fixes all my recipes. So. <laughs> <laughs> what is the what is the process equivalent of hot sauce? That, that, that. Well, this has been awesome, you guys. What um, we're we're about at our time here. What what's a, the one piece of advice you'd like to give people in product owner, product manager roles today? It's been said a million times, and I'll say it again. Talk to your customers every week. Talk to your customers. That was going to be mine. <laughs> That's it. Just, yeah. 
Don't uh, don't fake it, man. You uh, you got to talk to the people that use your product. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that was the fast answer. <laughs> we could ramble up some other stuff. <laughs> yeah. One final thought is, what what have you learned together? Like, what what have you taken away from the experience doing this class together? I can speak for myself. Uh, I have a habit of taking a two-day class, taking a three-day agenda, and stuffing it into a two-day class. (laughs) And if you don't get it all, it's your problem. Uh, (laughs) uh, So what I've learned teaching with Jeff uh, is that that sort of sucks and people don't like that. Uh, uh, my approach to being customer centric is to uh, make sure you get everything. And it's funny for as much as I talk about more isn't better, I, I overdo it. And Jeff has been my conscience about, look, people need time to reflect and time to ask and things like that. So I've learned to, uh, to uh, pull back uh, quite a bit. Uh, I don't know if Jeff has learned anything from me. No, I have. I, I, so that's really good. Actually. I, th- I think for me, it's, uh, uh, it's it's increased and, and forgive this this it's I'm not saying this tongue in cheek at all but it is it's going to sound like it it's increased the agility of my teaching so <laughs> no no and I mean that yeah. here's why all right because generally speaking I teach from a slide deck I, I I write the class I've got modules I've got timings I've got I, I, I'm very frankly prescriptive with with the agenda for for the class. And Jeff, you know, Jeff talks and he live sketches what he's doing and people ask questions and we'll go off on tangents. And, uh, you know, you may, you may have noticed that during this podcast. I'm not sure. Right. Here, here and there. But no, but the, the point is, is that is that there it, it's taught me to kind of let go of my dependence on on the my outline, my table of contents, my slides and really kind of. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've been known occasionally, rarely, but occasionally to even sit down and do a little live sketching myself um, for, for the class as well. And it's it just it's it's really helped me um, kind of, again, increase the agility of, of the way that I teach teach my material. Do we want to stop and sing yeah. the Frozen Let It Go song? <laughs> We're going to dinner next. Be the <laughs> yeah, let's do that as the outro. <laughs> so you're in Geneva right now. What are some future dates that people that could potentially catch you in this class we are going to so we're in geneva today and tomorrow this week and 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 then uh london at the end of this week but we are going to be in uh and i'm looking up the date as we speak we are going to be in berlin on may 15th and 16th of this year and teaching the same two-day class and then we're going back to london on May 21st and 22nd. So uh, a couple a couple dates in uh, May 15, 16 in Berlin, May 21st and 22nd in London with this two-day CSPO class. 21st and 22nd, oh, that's right, you've got this calendars. I'm gonna be in Stockholm, I believe, on the 17th and 18th. I'm gonna be in Stockholm around in there too. May. Of May, I, because remember we're putting we straddle that because I've got to be in Stockholm yeah. in between, so all by myself. So it won't be the same quality. You won't hear the same banter. Uh, <laughs> and then if you check my website, I'll, I'll be in uh, San Francisco uh, sometime in the uh, spring and uh, New York sometime uh, in the fall. 
something like that. And Jeff has got a lot of, you should check Jeff's website. You've got a lot of stuff on your own. Yeah, my website's under, under construction at the moment. <laughs> no, so, don't check uh, his website. No, do but, check his uh, website. It'll be a, a construction. But, but, but if, there's, if there's one other event I could, I could point to, I'd love to point to the fact that I'm going to be in Dublin in April at the uh, Agiline Ireland conference. So Henrik Nieberg and I are keynoting that conference. It's on April 26th. And then on the 25th, the, the day before, I'm teaching a one-day Sense and Respond workshop, which is essentially, uh, the, the point of that workshop is to take people who have, who have gone down this path, this agile path, right, this product discovery path, and it's not moving along as well as they'd hoped. And it's a class about taking the model, the kind of risks, assumptions, hypotheses, experiments model, and applying it to process improvement. And so I've got a one-day workshop on that on April 25th in Dublin at the Agile Lean Ireland conference. And Jeff Patton, I saw that uh, you're gonna be the keynote speaker at Big Apple Scrum Day, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's funny, I have to look at my calendar, right? Both of us keep uh, pretty busy. Yes, I'll be at Big Apple Scrum Day. I know I've got another conference in Munich uh, in the middle of the summer, and uh, I, I lose track of <laughs> all those things. Yeah, it, I think it check both of our websites, but but yeah, I'll be at Big Apple Scrum Day. Uh, and actually, the, the week that I'm doing Big Apple Scrum Day, that's the week, that's the same week that I'll have the, uh, the CSPO class on my own in New York. Fantastic. So it kind of turned out that way. Great. We'll make We'll make sure we get all of these conferences noted in your footnotes as well. So for anybody listening, if you're interested in attending any of the classes or conferences, we'll make sure you have the, the links here in the footnotes. Yeah, and they're both avid Twitter users. So make sure you follow them. Uh, that's actually how we got this interview is I tweeted at both of them and said, can we chat? They were like, we have nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> so Colleen, what about you? How can people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Scrum Hive, and yeah, that's probably the best place to get a hold of me quickly. <laughs> All right, and I am at Chris Mern. Uh Gentlemen, thank you so much for doing this. This was a fantastic conversation. Um, if you are uh, new to the podcast and you're interested in hearing more of it, be sure you subscribe on uh, your platform of choice, and thanks for listening.